So as we think about, meditate upon wisdom, let's listen to this, what God says in this scripture. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I, and with much, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest in men's wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understand it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit, of, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught us by the Spirit. Expect expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. They are spiritually discerned. And from Matthew 5, 13 to 20. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear 
from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Epiphanies and in-between time. The joy of Christmas is over. The ribbons and the tinsel and the boxes have all been put away till next year. And the sorrows of Lent and the praise of resurrection is in the distance. It's, it's a ways yet. We live in these days in an in-between time wandering, maybe even adrift, living between the two poles of faith, the the birth and the resurrection of Jesus, and wondering whatever it is we wonder. Our questions might be, is this all there is? Is Is this what Christianity is all about? They might be, I have real questions about God and his existence. It's even real. Is this, is this story even true? We live in the season of epiphany with our questions, with our uncertainties, with our in-between. And so it becomes a season for us to ask as a congregation and a people, really what are we to be? What, what ought we to be as the church? What, who ought we to be as the people of God? If, if this Christianity thing actually makes sense to us, how ought we to live it out? Ought it to be more than just a service club? Service clubs being good things. Ought it to be more than that? Ought it to be more than some political and economic points of view? Ought it to be more than that? How? And so we sit in this in-between time and we ask those questions. And the scriptures in the lectionary invite us in this season of Epiphany to take Two really rich, deep passages of Scripture that have two very different kinds of flavors and invite us to mash them up. This season of Epiphany invites us to take the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' great conversation with his disciples about how they are to live in the world. And even though we've spent the last 500 years through all kinds of scholarship, trying to figure out how to avoid living out the Sermon on the Mount. There it is, staring at us. And Paul's letter 
to the incredibly dysfunctional church in Corinth and those magisterial opening chapters that talk about the cross and what it means. And this season of Epiphany invites us to take this impossible standard of the Sermon on the Mount and this improbable conversation about the cross in the midst of a dysfunctional church and mash them together and to see what kind of flavors emerge. The problem is that where it leads us is to the place of wisdom. And the problem is we don't know what wisdom really is. We've, we've relativized wisdom in our culture. Your wisdom may, may, may not be my wisdom. It's okay that you have your wisdom. It's okay. But, but there's my wisdom, and, and it's just as good. Thank you very much. And oh, by the way, if your wisdom and my wisdom actually agree, oh, that's so cool. We've relativized wisdom. And we've ideal. We've made it into an ideology. Wisdom becomes a checklist of things that you must believe or else the circle is drawn and you're outside of it. You, you must follow these steps in order to have wisdom. I... I sit on Facebook with a really good friend of mine from Kansas. We spent 12 years on a board together. And Lowell Peachy is as far to the right politically as I am to the left. And I consider him a really dear friend. And Lowell and I go hammer and tongs at each other and, and love every minute of it. He loves it. I love it. Uh, we love the debate. But he threw a curve at me last week. He actually threw two curves at me. Someday I'll talk about the other one. But, <laughs> but, but the curve he threw at me for the point of this sermon is, is he started talking about originalist views of the Constitution. I had no idea what the heck he was talking about. And so I just sort of said, well, you know, aren't all ancient documents subject to, you know, sort of interpretation by the people today who are reading them and trying to make sense of them in their cultural context? And his argument was, no. To which I replied, well, okay, Lowell, the next time I'm in Kansas, I'm looking forward to that holy kiss. <laughs> I got an emoji back that I won't describe. We make wisdom either so relative or such an ideological uh, point of view that there's no conversation anymore. There's no, there's no discussion. Wisdom becomes that which you must do, the box you must tick in order to be accepted. Paul rejects these two options. Jesus rejects these two options. The New Testament redefines the essence of wisdom. And so this morning we want to explore these two texts. But I want to try to do it 
in a slightly different way. And at the end of this morning, you're going to need to go to Joy Kim and you're going to need to ask her if I got it right. Because I'm going to borrow from Korean culture and the things that Joy's been teaching me in our weekly meetings. As an IVEPer, Joy has to endure um, a weekly one-hour meeting with me. That's, that is, that is in, incredibly painful, and Joy will be the first to tell you that. But uh, uh, the, uh, the conversation around that has been, she talks to me for, I talk to her for a half hour about how it's going, and then she spends a half hour trying to tutor me in Korean words and concepts and wisdom and philosophy. And I'm a pretty thick-headed, slow student. So you're going to have to check in with Joy to see if I got it right. In 1 Corinthians, wisdom gets redefined. And in Korea, there is this concept of nunchi, of reading feelings. It's a wisdom that's deeper than the wisdom that comes with words. It's a wisdom that goes beyond vocabulary. It's a wisdom that goes beyond simply being emotionally intelligent and able to read body language and nonverbal clues. Nunchi is the intimate familiarity with one another. It's, it's the ability, from an outsider's point of view, to almost be able to read each other's minds. You know what the other's going to do. This is the benefit of being a culture together on an isolated peninsula for thousands of years. You're able to know each other in a different way. It also seems to me that it's an intimate familiarity with the character and personality of one another. It is, in essence, one of the goals of the cruciform community that that the art of following Jesus isn't simply ticking off behavioral boxes. It's living with him and each other in such a way that we become intimately familiar with each other. Devoted to each other. Capable of understanding each other. That takes effort, and it takes stubborn loyalty, and it takes a willingness to fail. I think if Paul were writing 1 Koreans instead of 1 Corinthians, he might have, word the, he might have used the word nunchi instead of the word Sophia to describe how the cross shapes us. That the essential wisdom of the gospel can be expressed in this Korean term of, of, of being able to feel each other's reality, of that deep empathy for one another that comes because we've all committed to following Christ daily in life. And so Paul begins in chapter 2 with talking about knowing Christ and Him crucified, that that's all that matters to him, that Paul's 
theological checklist is very, very brief. Knowing Christ and Him crucified. That in, that in the incarnation and the experience of, that is to come for us in the Christian calendar of Lent and Holy Week and Easter, of the cross and the resurrection, that in that experience we, we become intimately familiar with God and with God's people. Now, that made Paul terrified. He talks in verses 3 to 5 about his fear of bringing that message to the Corinthians. I resonate with Paul when he talks about fear. My, my first three years as pastor of a church at a seminary, Sunday morning would come along and I had some butterflies and those butterflies would slowly turn into churning and at some point before that moment when the mighty Muller organ would begin to play at First Mennonite Church of Upland, I'd go to the men's room and I'd hurl because I was scared to death of preaching to this crowd of people. Not a very big crowd, by the way. I understand the fear Paul had of preaching. Of preaching a gospel that is so simple you can't quite figure out how to say it differently week in and week out. But for Paul it was knowing Christ and knowing that he was crucified. That Jesus is something more than just a good guru. That Jesus is more than just our boyfriend. That Jesus is the crucified Lord who rose again and who makes it possible for us to experience nunchi. A deep, intimate knowledge of God and one another. Paul goes on to declare this this new understanding of wisdom in verses 6 through 16. He talks about the mystery of God in verses 6 to 10, and it's, it's a midrash, it's a commentary on Isaiah 65, which is the text where Isaiah proclaims God is bringing a new heaven and a new earth, that, that the work of God is about transformation. That's the wisdom of God. That the world as it is, is going to give way to the world as God has always intended it to be. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. Make peace with it. It's the good news. The good news is we don't bring the kingdom of God in through our own smarts or through our own efforts. God is unfolding the kingdom all around us calls us instead to wisdom, to nunchi, to an intimate familiarity with what God is up to in the world. And that means that the Holy Spirit becomes that entity, that part of God's being that, that is searching and that leads us to be a searching people. And so wisdom isn't the static recitation of old nostrums that have worked generation in and generation out. It's the constant rediscovery of the gospel in our time. 
that Jesus, while He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, proclaims a good news that is always changing. Because our world is always changing. Good news for us in 2017 will look very differently than the good news looked in 1997 or 1984 or any other date on the calendar. And we have to embrace a searching Holy Spirit on a quest to understand that good news, Paul says, in our midst. Because what, what emerges out of that process, what emerges out of knowing that mystery of God's desire for transformation and the searching Spirit sending us on a quest is what Paul calls the mind of Christ. And he doesn't say that mind exists as a reward someday when you've been good and you've followed the rules. He says, we have the mind of Christ. That Christ is accessible to us. That he seeks an intimate familiarity with us. Christ desires nunchi with us. That's the good news. Wisdom gets redefined for Paul. Not as a checklist of rules to follow, but as a way of life that lives in the fog of the everyday and seeks the wisdom of God in each moment. The other passage comes from Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. It is that part of the Sermon on the Mount that we, that I probably take the most for granted. It's that, it's that salt and light passage. We throw those metaphors around all the time. And, and in reality, all Jesus, I think, is saying is, look, salt preserves, light discerns. Salt Salt makes things stable longer. In the ancient world, if you rubbed something with salt in the Middle East, it lasted longer. It was preserved. You, it was stable. It didn't rot. What keeps our souls from rotting, Jesus is saying, what keeps our lives from turning rotten, is a commitment to live as salt. To seek the preservative additive of Christ in our lives. And that Christ is also light and we are therefore called to be light. To be a light on a hill so that people can see where to go. That we are a light not under a bushel creating darkness but transforming the space that we're in. Jesus is calling for a Christian wisdom to be translated into character, into action. And he says the source of this wisdom, the way we know how to be salt and light, is that we pay attention to what gets translated in our English Bibles as the law, the Torah, the Hebrew texts, the Bible that Jesus had. Jesus was a person 
of the text, of the scriptures. And the source of godly wisdom is the scriptures, that through historical processes, both holy and profane, this book has come together through the oversight of the Holy Spirit to guide our steps, to give us direction. In Korea, there's a proverb. After three years in the village schoolhouse, even the dog knows how to recite a poem. That's the English translation, at least. Uh, I'll let Joy read it in Korean for us sometime. Uh, but that proverb reminds us that the movement towards being salt and light, that movement towards being a person whose life is shaped by the character of the Torah, is a long process. It's three years in the village schoolhouse, and even then, you know, then the dog can recite the poem. If we take up the long obedience in the same direction, the call to discipleship, that is what secures a godly life. Discipleship is not ticking off boxes and saying, yeah, I agree with, I agree with three statements in column A and two in column B and one in column C. Discipleship is a process of following Jesus, rinsing and repeating. Following Jesus, rinsing and repeating. Following Jesus, rinsing and repeating. It's a repetition. It's a recitation. It's being the dog in the village schoolhouse and listening to the same poem over and over and over again until we get it right. Now that may sound boring for us first worlders who can hop on a jet and go anywhere where we can buy almost any kind of thrill we're seeking. But it's at the heart of the invitation of the gospel. The covenant promise is, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that takes repetition. That takes doing it over and over and over again. You would know at this point there would be a football analogy, being that it's Super Bowl Sunday. So I will provide one for you because I knew you were waiting for it. The Green Bay Packers, in the heyday of the Vince Lombardi era, closed their practice every day, not by running wind sprints. You would think a disciplinarian like Lombardi would just sit there with his whistle and make people run until they dropped. He didn't. They ran 51 power right, 51 power left. It was a sweep play that required the two guards next to the center. That's the person who has the ball at the start of the play. Requires those two guards to pull and go one direction. So everybody's in, mo in motion. It's not just the linemen sort of take a step forward. Everybody's running, all 11 people running in different directions to move the ball down the field. And they ran it again and again and again and again. Full speed, in pads, out of pads. They ran the play over and over again until it became 
automatic. And you see these films from that era, and you see these two great offensive guards, Jerry Kramer and Fuzzy Thurston. That was his name. And how they're pulling down the field, and they don't just get one block. Sometimes they don't get two blocks. They get three blocks down the field because they are so used to running this play. It's automatic to them. That's a crude example of discipleship. Practicing over and over and over again. Playing scales until your fingers bleed. Not yours, right? He doesn't practice. Let's just note for the record, I did. I never understood when my kids were in marching band why the drummers had to play scales. I was one of those band dads in the you know yellow windbreaker helping to set up and tear down stuff and 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 I listen that noise of those percussionists playing scales would ring in my head hours after I got home. But the darn good band line. I had a wand to whip John W. North High School all the time. <laughs> I'll stop there. But that's what, that's what living out wisdom means. It means we play the scales of discipleship. We run 51 power right until we get it perfect. That's what Jesus is saying here. When Be salt, be light, pay attention to the Torah. Live in such a way that your life preserves and discerns. That doesn't come by accident and it doesn't come simply. It comes with repetition. So, how do we become a wisdom-seeking church? Well, there's a great Korean proverb. Even if you know the way, ask one more time. <coughs> We in the church, those of us who have grown up in the church, we've been in the church maybe all our lives, maybe the last 20 years, we think we, we think we've got all the answers. We think we, we know it. But the call of the gospel, the urging of the gospel, let's ask one more time. Check it out again. Play the scales again. Run the play again. So that you, so that you know for sure. So that you get better at it. So how do we become a wisdom-seeking church? What's the way? One more time. Well, we begin by taking the cross seriously. We begin by, by recognizing that the symbol of our faith is a, is a symbol of violence, is a symbol of political execution, is a symbol of what happens to people when they revolt from the status quo. And it challenges us it's not a warm and fuzzy symbol, our faith. It's a symbol that invites us to be countercultural. Do we take that seriously? Being a wisdom seeking church also means facing our fears. As Paul faced his fears, we too have to face our fears and deal with them. 
It's also about appreciating the mystery of the gospel, that it isn't all figured out, that that God is beyond our capacity to rationally and logically infer in totality. We are going to go through life without all the answers. We will run 51 power right and somebody will still tackle the running back for a loss. And Coach Lombardi on the sidelines will yell and scream. But Jesus will say, yeah, go run it again. We understand that wisdom is character, not strictly knowledge. Wisdom isn't about how much we know. It's about what we do with what we know. And wisdom is about welcoming the instruction of the text, welcoming the Torah, welcoming the Bible into our lives. Because then we will understand that we'll understand in wisdom about what it means to be a repairer of the walls. And we'll understand what it means to be one who reconciles the breaches. And we'll understand what it means to be salt and light. So this morning, some questions for us. How do we acquire the mind of Christ? Is that even is that is that kind of question even on our radar screen? Most of us, if we confess, most of us want Christianity to be about the elimination of the problems I face in life. That Christianity ought to be a tool for us to overcome the things that get in our way. It's a strategy, like time management. It's another way to kind of overcome the stuff that bumps into me. But wisdom, the wisdom of the gospel, is that you get the mind of Christ. How do we acquire that? What are we going to do with it? Are we just going to use the mind of Christ to have a more efficient day? Or are we going to use the mind of Christ, that gift of God given to us, to change our world. What's the place of wisdom in our quest for a passionate spirituality? I warned you, we're going to be talking about passionate spirituality this year. Where does wisdom fit into that? Is passionate spirituality simply the surrender of our thinking to a higher power? Or is there an intersection between the skill of knowing and loving and following Christ and the passion of expressing that in joyful surrender to the gospel. Maybe the most important question for us first worlders, are we simply too busy to become wise? Are we, are we in a stage in our lives where the to-do list And the daily routine is so intense and there's so little margin that we're just too darn busy to be wise. And so if we could boil the gospel down into a few 
axioms about how to be nice to people. That would be lovely. How do we apply knowledge? How do we apply the knowledge of the text to wisdom that's necessary for life? There's an old German Mennonite proverb, too soon old, too late smart. May that not be true of us. May we be a people who continue to work at becoming wise through our lives. One more thing. Not a Korean proverb this time, but uh, a final word from that great theologian of rock and roll, Jimi Hendrix. (laughs) Knowledge speaks, but wisdom listens. May we have the boldness and the courage to listen to the wisdom of God in all of its mystery. May it transform us from folks full of good intentions to people of salt and light. And in doing so, may we change the world. Thanks be to God for his word.